Thomas Jefferson took a scissors to his Bible and he cut and he pasted and he ended up with a kind of uh, Mr. Rogers Jesus. You know, lots of love and kindness. One of the ways we can enter the Gospels are a bunch of different sort of windows that we can we can pass through in terms of helping us to derive meaning and, and uh, interpret. And one of the ways we might think of the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as, is a, as though they had a part one and part two. Now, we don't see this when we open our English translations. In fact, we know that if not for uh, the translators and interpreters, we wouldn't have such things as chapter designations and verses or even punctuation, but we do, and they all help us access uh, God's Word. But we can think of uh, there being part one and part two. Part one focuses on the life of Jesus, of his public ministry, that he gathers disciples around him, he teaches and preaches and performs healings and draws crowds and gets into conflict with religious leaders. All of this we know takes place in the first three years of, of his public ministry. We could consider that part one. And part two, then, is, is everything that happens in the final week of Jesus' life, the, the days from Palm Sunday through Easter. Part one takes place in and around Galilee for the most part, part two in Jerusalem. And in each of the Gospels, that part two devoted to that final week of Jesus' life, the week we call holy, you know, takes almost as much space, nearly as many pages. Not quite, but, you know, almost as, as all of part one, which covers three whole years. Part two, just that final week. And over the centuries, there have been more than a few attempts to rewrite the story of Jesus. In the late 18th and 19th century, it was kind of veritable uh, growth industry, writing what came to be known as the Lives of Jesus uh, books. And, and, and many of these authors, some of them scholars, others decidedly not, set about refashioning the gospel story, editing out what they determined was just too problematic for, you know, enlightened people uh, to believe, trying to get at the essence of teachings of the ministry of Jesus. One of the most, you may know this, you may not, one of the most prominent people who set about doing this was Thomas Jefferson. Uh, you can still find version of, of the Jefferson Bible, it came to be known, and Thomas Jefferson took a scissors to his Bible, and he cut and he pasted, and he ended up with a kind of uh, Mr. Rogers Jesus. You know, lots of love and kindness, um, but no miracles and no resurrection, nothing, you know, supernatural, if you will. And there were, there were countless Jesus rewrites over the next century plus until the whole thing was brought to more or less a screeching halt by Lutheran pastor and theologian Albert Schweitzer. This is prior to his being a medical missionary. Schweitzer wrote The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And, and to nearly everybody's satisfaction, among other things, he pointed out that, you know, the edited versions of Jesus always seem to end up looking suspiciously a lot like the authors. All right? So humanist writers came up with a humanist Jesus. And 
romantics with a romantic Jesus. Social reformers come up with a re, uh, social reforming Jesus. Liberals with a liberal Jesus. Conservatives with a conservative Jesus and so on. My point of kind of starting out with this on, on this last Sunday before we enter the holy season of Lent is, is that most of these Jesus editors didn't much like the part of the story we are now going to enter. The Lent part, if you will. They really didn't like the cross and Easter. They gravitated toward Jesus, the, you know, the young rabbi with fresh ideas. And, and more often than not, they, they ended the story just before you get to the crucifixion and the resurrection and all of that business. Just imagine for a moment that you were born a long time ago and you didn't know the story of Jesus at all. Imagine it's the first century and you are a... You're a, you're a wool trader in Syrian Antioch, and you've been hearing about these people being referred to as Christians. And uh, you're intrigued about these neighbors because uh, the way they, they, the love they have for each other, the care they show, even for widows and orphans, and, and, and the way of their being is like nothing you've ever seen. So you, you decide, I'm going to go to one of their gatherings. And you, you go, and on the day you visit, they're taking turns reading aloud. A couple of those uh, who are able to do so are reading aloud from the Gospel of Matthew, as we have just heard read, passage. And, and you listen as the tale unfolds. The story of his birth, his baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, uh, his gathering of followers, the Sermon on the Mount we've been spending these weeks in, the parables, his compassionate acts of, of healing. And, and finally, the story gets to the point we're at today, which is obviously the great climax and the perfect ending. We just heard it read, Jesus takes several of his closest followers to a mountaintop where they have this mystical, powerful, profound experience. This passage from Matthew on this last Sunday before Lent tells the story of this glorious memory. It's a memory we call transfiguration. It rises as a sweet memory above the sad memories that precede it and those that will follow. Just prior to this in the previous chapter, Jesus had asked his disciples kind of a, a fork in the road question, who do people say that I am? And some say, hey, some are saying, you know, John the Baptist's return or even one of the great prophets like Elijah. And Jesus focuses the question a bit. But who do you say that I am? And we get that declaration from Peter. Peter says out loud, the quiet thing, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus shares what that identity will mean for him, that it necessarily will involve rejection and suffering and dying before resurrection. And Peter says, oh, well, we can't hear of any such thing, Jesus. It's no kind of ending. I mean, Jesus did say resurrection, but how are you going to hear that after rejection and suffering and dying Certainly not, Jesus, to which the stinging reply comes, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is the Logos, the Word, the full gospel, the truth, and the life. 
So above all of this foreshadowing of dark things, above all the difficult things that are soon to follow, today's transfiguration mountain rises above a brooding plain. Jesus takes Peter and James and John to a lonely place in the mountains to pray. And there the glory shines through in some profoundly moving way. The experience is a glorious moment, and the disciples, they don't know what to do with it. They just don't know what to make of it. Peter says, hey, I could make three dwelling places, three worship centers, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and maybe part of Peter is thinking that this is incredible, this presence is so powerful, it's so overwhelming, maybe we can stay here a while, or maybe at least we can... We can build a place that we can return to and recapture this kind of powerful, glorious moment. You know, we do it to this day. We visit the Holy Land and we visit the sites where things happened, you know. Here's where John the Baptist was doing his baptizing in the Jordan. Here's the garden tomb. Maybe we could, we could build a place up here in Mount Transfiguration. Maybe he wants to hang on to the moment by building a Jesus and Moses and Elijah museum so that they can all kind of revisit it. I'm quite certain if the Transfiguration happened today that Peter would be trying to get Jesus and Elijah and Moses to scooch in a little closer so that he and James and John can all get in a selfie together for a kind of Transfiguration selfie. They could post it to Twitter and it would go viral. It would blow up on positive that would be uh, our modern kind of version of this event. But the transfiguration has always been more than impossible to capture. Peter's been told what is coming, and he would just as soon not face a future that involves such things as betrayal and dashed hopes and suffering and crucifixion. Can't this right here, <laughs> this electric, powerful, vision of glory. Can't this be the way the story ends? We'll commemorate it. Moses and Elijah are there with their great teacher transfigured. The law, Moses, the prophets, Elijah. And finally, a voice from heaven just confirms the whole sweep of the story you've been listening to. Remember, you're a wool trader from Syrian Antioch in the first century. Finally, the capstone of this great story. This cloud descends, and from the cloud a voice, this is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. What a great ending. Well, there's a name for this kind of altitude sickness. <laughs> this desire for glory and victory it's called uh, theology of glory, in fact. It's the mistaken belief, the snake oil pyramid scheme of a kind of Christian exceptionalism that wants to convince you that in getting close to Jesus, you are likely to experience next-level blessing in your life. Lent is the cure for all this nonsense. Lent does not happen up here on the mountain. It walks us back through the valley below. 
As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Dead? You whisper to yourself. Raised? There's more to this story. And the more to this story is what Thomas Jefferson and so many others endeavored to edit out. And, you know, we shouldn't fault them. Even today, people want to remake Jesus into nothing more than a good moral teacher of religious ideas and positive thinking. The Gospels insist that the whole story pushes on to the next mountain. The next hilltop is Calvary, and beyond that, to the resurrection. If this were not so, this faith of ours that got us out of bed and made us amble our way over here to the church this morning, this faith of ours would not go as deep as life goes. After the cross... There is no way to romanticize Christianity into some watered-down optimism that looks away from the grim realities of this broken world. In the cross, God descends to the very depths of human suffering. In the cross, God incorporates, takes into God's corpus, God's body, the whole of human sinfulness. In the cross, God declares in a way deeper than words, there is no pain that you can bear. There is no darkness that can overtake you. There is no fear that might grip you that I have not passed through. And when you are passing through it, I am with you. The promise is that even in thick darkness, and obscuring clouds. God is present, a dazzling darkness, as Barbara Brown Taylor has called it, a dazzling darkness. And it all points toward Easter and resurrection. The great cry of Easter is that God, not death, God, not your sin, God, not suffering, God, not Dying, not hate, not addiction, not illness, but God has the last word. Jesus is the Logos, the Word, the full gospel, the truth, and the life. And that last word is life. And so from this Mount Transfiguration, we can see back all the way back to Moses ascending the mountain to get the gift of the log, the law, the Decalogue uh, from the Lord. And we can and we can now we can see our way forward as we turn into this holy season of Lent. I have uh, long deeply appreciated that we are part of a liturgical tradition that spends time uh, in each of these holy seasons. And I encourage you to engage with Lent, uh, be a part of our Wednesday worship and then our Sunday's worship uh, as we move back down into the valley, uh, always aware of God's presence with us moving uh, toward Holy Week uh, together. So we go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.